cares? What, what else can you ask for in these trying times? I don't know. They were meatless besides. So, like, you really can't ask for more. All right. You got, yes. your, second, you got your second vaccine. I got my second vaccine. No one tell my mother. Fun. Um, so fun. Little to no side effects for me. Next time we see each other, full open mouth kissing. On the sidewalk. Yeah. 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 Well, Obviously. I'm down. Anybody else want to join us? Only if you're vaxxed. Well, we're 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 being lighthearted, but you know, this week, uh, I, it's gonna be not a fun time. I also was gonna say I wouldn't say this week because it's this week and next week, yeah. and probably the week after. Well, that. see, yeah. Here's the thing. So, <laughs> all right, three weeks of depression. You you've read the the title. We're talking about Columbine. And uh, we've had many requests for this. Yes. Uh, highly, highly requested episode and much anticipated. So I started doing research. And then I Couldn't lost stop. my mind. Yes. So <laughs> this is a 45-page document. Yeah. Uh, this is more than I ever wrote anything for high school. <laughs> But like, nothing was as, like, it's not like you had a topic you were as interested in in high school. I did do an essay on, uh, I know we talked about it, um, Fast vs. Slow Zombies. That was the last essay That's true. I ever That's wrote true. In, That's in high true. school. Um, I, all right. Yeah. Okay. But this is, this is about, uh, part, like, kind of as long as some of my friends' like dissertations. Yeah, I was going to say my thesis was 52 pages. Exactly. Ask me how many times I can fit that into a conversation. Let me tell you. Fun times. My thesis that literally matters to no one else. A dull girl. Yep. Yep. Find me on LinkedIn because I do have a LinkedIn. Crime culture doesn't. I Oh, we're crime culture. Yeah. You know, like five (laughs) minutes into the episode. Sure. Yeah, we're fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it. They know what the episode is. Come on. These are the OGs listening. It's true. It's true. If, if. It was anybody new that have checked out by now. Fucking two dollar, two for ten dollar pizzas. What are they talking about? I mean, come on. Anyway, so we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, and um, we're trying to avoid it because <laughs> we yeah, know it's we're upsetting. Gonna get to it. So basically, hold on, I need to move. Okay. I gotta get myself comfy. It's gonna so, be a minute. I think we should get comfy. Everybody, get is. comfy. Take a moment. Everyone. Take a moment. If you're driving to work, pull over. It's not going to be a fun time for you. <laughs> Just if don't go to work. If you're at work, don't unplug your headphones. If you're um, at work, go home. <laughs> if you're at work, go home. Uh, if you're home, get away from your family. Go to work. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So we're going to start in like... <sighs> a shit place we're gonna talk about uh, just a the little thing is a shit place i know we're gonna talk a little bit about who these pieces of shit are eric harris and dylan klebold okay i'm really trying not to focus on them as the topic of this case we'll get into it but you kind of need to know a little bit of backstory to really understand what this whole case is about so uh eric david harris was born in wichita kansas on april 9th 1981 his mother, Catherine Ann Poole, was a homemaker, and his father, Wayne Harris, was a U.S. Air Force transport pilot. And because of Wayne's job, the Harris family had to move around a lot, 
1983, when Eric was two, the family moved to Dayton, Ohio. Six years later, they relocated to Michigan. 1992, they moved to Plattsburgh, New York, then to Colorado the next year when Wayne retired from the military. So these people are all over the place. Okay. This is going to be challenging thing number one because of all this moving around. I'll get to it. But, like, you can't really put down those roots and like get your core group of friends and we'll get into it so for the first three years they were in littleton colorado the harris family lived in rented accommodations but in 1996 they purchased a house south of columbine high school to settle down eric's older brother kevin attended college at the university of colorado their father took a job with flight safety services corporation and their mother became a caterer okay And on an English assignment, two years before the shooting, Harris wrote about how difficult it was to move from, specifically from New York to Colorado. Uh, Quote, it was the hardest moving from Plattsburgh. I have the most memories from there. When I left my friends, I felt alone, lost, even agitated that I had spent so much time with them. And now I was going because of something I can't stop, end quote. And I think that's, that's something that anybody that has had a a difficult move can definitely relate to. Yes. Like I've been lucky enough. Like the only move I've ever made is like, I think like six blocks away (laughs) to like a a different house in the same town. Um, But if you move at like such like a, a tender age of like 12, 13, you have your like real best friends. And then all of a sudden you're like transplanted and it, yeah. it's like the the weird age where it's like so hard to like make new friends because everybody has like their clicks and it's so hard right. to like break into that. Um, Harris said in one of the basement tapes that he basically blamed his father for moving the family around and forcing Harris to, as he put it, start at the bottom of the ladder. Um, Harris also added that kids would often mock his appearance and we're going to definitely touch on um the bullying aspect of this case because it's real like it's a real point of contention with a lot of people about the bullying um but basically from all accounts he seemed to have a lot of friends in colorado um he was left forward in midfield on the columbine soccer team for his freshman and sophomore year and according to one of his teammates josh swanson uh he said that harris was a solid soccer player who enjoyed Mm -hmm. the sport a lot During his freshman year, Harris met Tiffany Typher. I believe that's her last name. Some accounts just say her name is Tiffany. Um, But he met this girl in his German class. Uh, Typher later recounted that Harris quickly caught her attention and the two started dating. Harris asked her to homecoming and she accepted. After the homecoming dance, it appeared that Typher was no longer interested in seeing Harris anymore um, for reasons that are not posted anywhere in any of the articles I had seen. Yeah, you just, it's high school. Yeah, it's high school. Everyone's getting together and breaking up. Yeah. So when Typher refused to go out with Harris again, he staged a fake suicide, sprawled on the ground with fake blood (sighs) splashed over him. And Typher said, quote, I knew it wasn't real. I could tell it was fake blood. I yelled, you guys are stupid and started running to a friend's house crying because it really shook me up. He was doing that. So maybe I'd come back to him and say, I'm sorry. End quote. Yeah. Which is fucked. Don't do that we're going to talk about warning signs in a little bit, but this is one of those things. It's like, that's not the normal route people usually go to, to get somebody's attention. To get someone back. Yeah. It's a little off. Um, Just a bit. 
Now we're going to talk about Dylan Klebold. So Dylan Bennett Klebold was born September 11th, 1981 in Lakewood, Colorado. Ah. His parents, Thomas and Sue, had met when they were both studying art at Ohio State University. They quickly fell in love and they both graduated uh, and got married in 1971. Their first child, Byron, was born in 1978. And Thomas had initially worked as a sculptor, but moved over to engineering to be a little bit more financially stable. Uh, Sue had worked as uh, in assistance services with disabled children. And shortly after he was born, Dylan was diagnosed with phyloric stenosis, I think it's called. Uh, it's a condition where the opening between the stomach and the small intestine thickens, and it causes oh, wow. severe vomiting during the first few months of life. So, Yikes. <laughs> worst case scenario for a kid just uh, right. constantly well and throwing for up. parents exactly uh so the cleavebolds were pacifists and they attended a lutheran church uh with their children both dylan and his older brother attended confirmation classes in accordance with the lutheran tradition at the family home the cleavebolds also observed some uh rituals in keeping with dylan's maternal grandfather's jewish heritage Dylan attended Normandy Elementary School for first and second grade and then transferred to Governor's Ranch Elementary School, where he was part of a program for gifted children. According to reports, Dylan was exceptionally bright as a young child, although he appeared somewhat sheltered in elementary school. When he transitioned to Ken Carroll Middle School, he found it difficult, but his parents were unconcerned because they assumed it was just regular behavior amongst a young teen. During his early school years, Dylan played baseball, soccer, and t-ball. He was in Cub Scouts with a longtime friend, Brooks Brown, and they had been friends since first grade. And Brooks Brown will be brought up multiple times throughout this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as them getting together, a lot of the information about their early friendship, um, aside from the transcripts of the basement tape, are kind of unknown, a little sketchy. Um, but what is known is that Harrison Klebold met at Ken Carroll Middle School during uh, their seventh grade year. Klebold's okay. friend, Brooks Brown, lived near the house that the Harrises had bought when they finally settled in Littleton, and he rode the same bus as Harris. Shortly after, Klebold had met Harris, and the pair became best friends really, really quickly. Later, Harris introduced Klebold to his friend, Nathan Dykeman, who attended their middle school, and they all became a really tight-knit group of friends. Okay. In high school, the boys were active in theater productions and became computer assistants where they would help maintain the school's computer servers. They hung out constantly. They would go bowling. They were always carpooling with each other. They played the video game Doom over a private server. Um, They even had the same part-time job at Blackjack Pizza. Ah. By their junior year in high school, they were described as inseparable. Chad Laughlin, a close friend of Harrison Klebold, had said that they always sat alone together at lunch and often kept to themselves, which you can imagine in high school, eventually a rumor was started that Harrison Klebold were gay and romantically yeah. involved due to their all of their time being spent together. Obviously, you can't have a fucking friend without somebody claiming no. that you're in love with them. No. <laughs> like, which it, also, don't do that. Don't do that either. Don't, don't spread those rumors. Like, just don't be no. a shit human being. No. Somebody can just be a friend with one other person. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, in this you case, it's not. You and I do it all the time. <laughs> exactly. Well, in this yeah. case, it's not. It's going to be bad. Yeah. Spoiler it, alert. This is a friendship that maybe could have gone without happening. Yeah. But. Um, but 
some people described Harris as charismatic and others described him as nice and likable. However, Harris often bragged about his ability to deceive others. In one of the basement tapes, he specifically mentions a time where he was going out um, shooting and he was carrying his shotgun in a gym bag and he passed his mother who saw the butt of the gun sticking out of the bag, but she assumed that it was a BB gun. And Eric says of this instant, quote, I can, con- I can convince them that I'm going to climb Mount Everest or that I have a twin brother growing out of my back. I can make you believe anything, end quote. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, there's some really fucking disturbing shit. I should mention before we even go any farther, uh, I read two books, watched four documentaries, hours and hours of interviews. Uh, I read through all of the bullshit transcripts of the basement tapes. I read through their fucking annoying-ass journals. Mm-hmm. I, I did a... <laughs> I... I fully understand these people as much as information is out there i've i've tried to seek all of the information i possibly could right Haley doesn't fuck around is what she's saying i'm trying not to because there's i mean in probably in part three we'll talk about um the weird divide that there's some people that are in love with these guys and right uh, we'll get to it which don't um, do that either. I feel like this entire episode is just don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Um, but anyway, by his junior year, Harris was uh, also known to be quick to anger. And he threatened. He often threatened people with bombs. So oh, lovely. Let's just have like a little sound every single time there's a warning sign. It's like ding, ding. Um, classmates also related that uh, Harris was fascinated by war. And he wrote out violent fantasies about killing people he didn't like. Ding, ding. What the fuck? Ding ding. Klebold, on the other hand, was described by his peers and adults as painfully shy. Uh, he would often be fidgety whenever someone new talked to him, and he rarely opened up to other people. Judy Brown, Brooks Brown's mother, believed that Harris was more emotionally dependent on Klebold, who was more liked by the broader student population. In his journals, however, Klebold wrote that he felt that he was not accepted or really loved by anyone. Okay. Due to these feelings, Klebold possibly sought validation from Harris. In an interview, Judy Brown said, quote, Would Dylan be a part of it? I couldn't imagine it. But h- could he be caught up in it in some way? Yes. And I think Eric was, the, was dominant over Dylan. I do believe that I had a conversation with Dylan's mother after the shootings. End quote. Um, Klebold's mm-hmm. mother believes that Harris's rage intermingled with Klebold's self-destructive personality caused the boys to feed off each other and enter in what would eventually become an extremely infernal friendship. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's... It makes sense. I, it It's going to be said over and over again throughout these episodes that, like, their friendship was the perfect storm. Not perfect as in, like... Right. Ah, just, like, <laughs> it was exactly the two personalities that would go through with this. Right, right. Um... So while it's true that the boys were bullied and labeled as unpopular, they weren't necessarily outcasts. They both had a close-knit group of friends at school and at work. Klebold's friend Robin Anderson, who actually ended up buying their weapons for them, attended prom with Klebold just three days before the shooting. They also hung out uh, with a co-worker at Blackjack Pizza, Philip Duran, who also helped them acquire guns. And there was Nathan Dykeman, like I said. Brooks Brown was a friend of theirs. They're, they had friends. Yeah. So when they talk about these guys were completely isolated, not necessarily. They had right. friends. They were right. they it, were bullied. 
But you can be bullied and also have friends. Right. Absolutely. And it doesn't fit into that narrative either that so many people kind of latch on to where the person had no friends. They had nobody around. They were a loner. And this isn't that case. That's not what's going down. As as I got like further and further further into the research, they did have this big group of friends. But as they started planning this, they had been planning this for like three years. Um, right. As they started really getting into the plans, they did kind of detach themselves and isolate them isolate themselves. It seemed like it seemed mm-hmm. like they were so wrapped up in planning this that they they would like huddle together and talk about this and not necessarily like open up to their group because they knew their group was not going to be on board with any of this. So they kept it within themselves and it just swirled around and around and obviously ended up where we are. Um, But anyway, uh, something that else that's going to come up early reports directly following the shooting said that Harris and Klebold were part of the trench coat mafia. And although they did have some friends in the group, they weren't part of the group themselves. And that rumor might have started because of what they were wearing on the day. Okay. Also, their friendships within the group. There were a lot of people um, after the shooting. Obviously, these are kids in a life-threatening situation. And you're shoving a microphone and a camera in their face as soon as they get out of the school. And you're like, what did you see? What What's going on? So these kids are freaking out. And they're like, well, I think it was this. And like people are saying this. Like... When you hear interviews directly after, it's a lot of like, we heard this. It's assumed that like there's no there's nothing that's confirmed. And then all of these rumors just swelled up and became like the front page news. Right. So I'm just brushing that up top. They weren't a part of the trench coat mafia. You can do your own research and find out all that information. They were not. Okay, can we do a really quick just generalization of what the Trenchcoat Mafia is, for those who don't know? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So the Trenchcoat Mafia was this group of kids. I think they were mostly, I don't have any of the the real, like, backstory in the Trenchcoat Mafia written down. Again, I already have a 45-page document, so I didn't want to lose my mind. But from what I had seen, the Trenchcoat Mafia were mostly kids in the grade above Harrison Klebold. Like, lots of them had mostly graduated by the school year of 1999 and it started because like one kid got this like long black duster which is what like the trench coat is like a coat that goes all the way down to the ground and he got this coat for like some fucking like i think it was like a dracula costume or or some costume for halloween and then like his friends were like dude that looks rad so he started (laughs) wearing it all the time and then a couple of other friends got it and then they decided they were like this click this is such a nerdy thing like yeah that's how all nerd shit starts it is it is <laughs> i know it is but still they could have easily been like the fedora men no that's a much larger conglomerate yeah but a lot of a lot of their friends in like the older grades were part of the trench coat mafia so okay their association with this group, I think, really um, drove people, especially in the hours and days after um, 
after the shooting and also uh famously in one of the the 911 calls Wayne Harris um he called 911 after seeing um early reports on uh the news mm-hmm. and i don't have the transcript but he basically said in his 911 call like i think my son might be involved wow and i think he's part of what they're calling the trench coat mafia so like wayne harris said the words trench coat mafia and then all of a sudden it blew up right so but that that's got, also brave of him to oh that's heartbreaking his kid yeah to just be like oh my god this is happening at that school wait uh now stuff is starting to click which we're gonna get to Uh, right now i'm gonna talk about some of their brushes with the law because um a lot of the failing of this case can be put upon i mean it could be put upon anyone you can say the parents should have seen something you could say Mm -hmm. um when i'm gonna get to that the police should have should have taken action a lot sooner a teacher should have known what was going on because i'll get to what they started writing in their classes like the blame can be laid on so many different people you can't just put it on one group i think after doing all this research it's just like wow they were failed on every single (laughs) every single front they just slipped through all the cracks um but their first brush with the law pretty much was in august 1997 harris ended a blog post he had this really annoying blog i read all the transcripts of it and it's whiny and pain in the ass anyway so he said in one of his blog posts uh quote all i want to do is kill and injure as many of you as i can especially a few people like brooks brown end quote also ding 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 (laughs) he posted this on a public blog post but people aren't or people weren't also that savvy with the internet back then like yeah. nobody knew to look for this it was probably one of those like angel fire websites with Ugh. like a black background and green writing tbt yeah. oh god it's not still active so obviously all we've of come all of the um all of the transcripts like from his blog were like copied into like a text form so like i don't right. i don't know what the actual website looked like but uh brown claims that klebold gave him the web address to warn him against harris's threats of violence uh others suggest it was discovered by brooks's brother aaron brown regardless after brown's parents viewed the site they contacted the jefferson county sheriff's office on august 7th 1997 when investigator michael guerrera accessed the, the website he discovered numerous violent threats directed against the students and teachers of CHS, as well as documentation of disturbing activities Harris had written about. Guerrera uh, wrote a draft affidavit requesting a search warrant of the Harris household. The affidavit also mentioned the discovery of an exploded pipe bomb and a suspicion of Harris being involved in that unsolved case. The affidavit was never submitted to the judge and therefore went ignored. What the fuck? Yeah. Um, It was said in a few documentaries and interviews that if that search warrant had been carried out, it's very likely that Harris would have been arrested for making the pipe bombs and the events that followed would have never happened. Yeah. But like I said, that could be said about anything. If one of the teachers had said something about his schoolwork, if X, Y, Z, this could never have happened. But you know what? It did. So now we're going to try to educate ourselves on what to do in other situations. Right. Um, but towards the end of 1997, the site contained instructions on how to make explosives. 
Harris wrote, quote, the first true pipe bombs created entirely from scratch by the rebels, Reb and Vodka, which is the nicknames that were for him and um, Dylan Klebold. Mm-hmm. Um, now our only problem is a find a place that will be the ground zero, end quote. Um, I don't know if this information was on the site when the police were looking at it. I would say if the police had looked at the website and they saw that specific quote and that post, then it would be 100% failing on them for not acting immediately. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, sorry, I'm moving again. (laughs) It's okay. Uh, on October 2nd, 1997, Harris and Klebold were suspended from school for hacking into Columbine's computer system to get student locker combinations. Again, like I said, they were um, computer assistants and they helped maintain the school servers. So they obviously knew how to get into uh, specific yeah. information in their servers. Um on January 30th, 1998, Harris and Klebold were arrested for breaking into a van parked near Littleton and stealing tools and computer equipment. They pled guilty to felony theft in a joint court hearing, and the judge sentenced them to to a juvenile diversion program. They both attended mandatory classes, such as anger management, and talked with diversion officers, and were eventually released several weeks early because of positive actions uh, in the program, and they were put on probation. (sighs) Sounds about white. Yep. So, now I'm going to get into a couple of Real big red flag warning signs that should have been noticed, but either went overlooked or someone took action and then it just fell flat after that. Oh, you mean besides the whole pipe bomb thing? Besides, you know. Yeah. Um, both Casual. had actively researched war and murder and displayed themes of violence in a lot of their schoolwork. Now, I'm going to put that at the top because... I wouldn't say that in itself is necessarily alarming because I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast can relate right. in being interested in this stuff from a relatively young age. Right. But when combined with everything else, yes, it's considered a red flag. Yeah. Um, in an interview with classmate Molly Holt, she mentions how her dad um, came to the school to do a presentation about his time in fighting in Vietnam. And Holt says afterwards that Harris came up to her and her father and was asking many disturbing questions, mainly about death. And after the Mm. interaction, um, Holt's father said specifically, like, that kid is weird. There's something off about that kid. Okay. So, again, it's noticed by an adult. Yeah. Um, For one project, Harris wrote a paper on Nazis and Klebold wrote a paper on Charles Manson. Again, that's not too weird. Uh, in my creative writing class, I did um, a short story about Jack the Ripper. So, like, it's not the weirdest thing in the entire world. No, but I would like to read this. I don't even know if I can ever find it. Oh, sure. We'll see. I'll, t- I'll talk to Lisa. <laughs> no, she didn't save anything. Um, in a psychology class, Harris wrote that he dreamed of going on a shooting spree with Klebold. Oh. Uh, Harris's That's journals innocuous. describe... Yeah, right. His journals describe several experimental bomb detonations. In December 1997, Harris wrote a paper on school shootings entitled Guns in School, and he wrote a poem from the perspective of a bullet. Uh, uh. Again, all of these things are coming together. Like he's con- It's not like he wrote one paper. He's writing 
a lot of stuff about shootings Fucked and up shit, yeah. crime. Yeah. Um, nearly a year before the massacre, Klebold wrote a message in Harris's 1998 yearbook, quote, killing enemies, blowing up stuff, killing cops. My wrath for January's incident will be godlike, not to mention our revenge in the commons. And the commons was another term for the school cafeteria. Oh. Which we'll get to. Um, before I dive into the timeline of the day, I briefly want to mention the basement tapes because they're going to come up a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so Harrison Klebold were both enrolled in video production classes and they kept five videotapes that were recorded on school's video equipment. Only the two of these, Hitmen for Hire and Rampart Range, um, and part of a third known as Radioactive Clothing, have been released. The remaining okay. three tapes are famously known as the basement tapes. And in these tapes, which are mostly shot in Harris's family basement, detail their plans and the reasons for the massacre, including the ways that they were planning on hiding their weapons and deceiving their parents. Mm-hmm. 30 minutes before the attack, they made a final video saying goodbye and apologizing to their friends and family. Klebold says, quote, hey, mom, got to go. It's about half an hour before our little judgment day. I just wanted to apologize to you guys for any crap that this might instigate as far as he says something inaudible or something. Just know that I'm going to a better place. I didn't like life too much, and I know I'll be happy wherever the fuck I go. So I'm gone. Goodbye, Reb. And then he hands the camera off to Harris um what's reb reb is the nickname of um eric harris it's short for rebel rebel is the um the mascot of columbine high school okay and um dylan klebold's nickname was vodka and it's right v o capital d k because his initials a i thought you said red no reb Okay. It's, it's going to come up. Reb and vodka are going to come up a couple of times. Okay. 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 I see um, now. So then Harris says his goodbyes. He says, quote, yeah, everyone I love, I'm really sorry about all of this. I know my mom and dad will just be like, just fucking shocked beyond belief. I'm sorry. All right. I can't help it. End quote. Um, Klebold <sighs> interrupts and says, quote, we did what we had to do. End quote. And Harris continues to say goodbye to his friends. Quote, Morris, Nate, if you guys live, I want you guys to have whatever you want for my room and my computer room. Susan, sorry, under different circumstances, it would have been a lot different. Uh, I want you to have that fly CD. That's it. Sorry. Goodbye. End quote. So just hearing that, it's like, I don't know. Because I'm angry. Once, once we get to the events of the day, they don't sound sorry. They're, I don't think they sound sorry now. I think they sound sorry in the sense of, or not, not sorry. I think they're saying, oh, sorry for what we're about to put you through. But they're not sorry. It's like when you knock into somebody at the grocery store and you go, oh, sorry. Like, you don't mean that. It's, You're it's just so- saying it because it's like what you do. But it's. Like even saying to their friends, um, "If you live, I want you to yeah. have this." Like, yeah, that that specifically. And again, they're talking to their friends. They were not outcasts. No, and even their fam. Like it's just, it's it's really it's infuriating. It's it's so like they're clearly, it, it's unconscionable. They're not sorry. No, they're but they, not. They clearly have some issues. Yeah, they, they clearly have. 
a mental issue that they need to work through. We'll get to some diagnosis later on, uh, probably in the next episode, because now we're getting into the timeline. I think this is going to be the rest of the episode because I went through multiple sources and the events of this day are kind of hard to tell in a timeline format because you're trying to follow the shooters, you're trying to follow the survivors and the responders. There's a lot right. of different things happening all at once, but this is as, as linear as I can get it. I am going to throw out a trigger warning. This is extremely upsetting to hear about. Uh, if you have been in a uh, active shooter situation, please take care of yourself. Do not listen to this. Um, I don't want anyone to be triggered by anything we're going to say. I'm going to get a little choked up at some points because I was, I had to stop watching uh, some documentaries at some points because they had um, reenactments. Oh God. You can just put yourself, everyone's been to high school. You can just put yourself in the shoes of like, all right, imagine this is at my high school. Imagine that's my teacher. Like all of this stuff. Like it's, it's, it's a lot. Um, That's, oh God. But I think it's important to, um, I'm going to get to a lot of survivor stories later on. I think it's, it puts into context um, what they went through afterwards. If you know mm-hmm. what they went through on that day, it makes it a lot more poignant. Okay. But again, this is heavy shit. So please take care of yourself. Pause, stop, turn off the podcast if you need to. Do what you got to do. Yeah. Again, there's going to be two more episodes. This is going to be the heaviest of it. So come back for episode two, which is going to be everything that happens after the the events of the day. And episode Mm -hmm. three is going to be entirely the pop culture section. So if that's what you're interested in, come back to it. So starting at the beginning on the morning of Tuesday, April 20th, 1999, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold missed their 6 a.m. bowling class at AMF Bellevue Bowling Lanes. Their teacher, Christine McCauley, noted that this was weird because the boys were always in class. They loved their bowling class. Mm-hmm. Again, But a weird? 6 a.m.? Yeah, I was going to ask Aggressive. about that. Aggressive. Is, is it like... Is it for credit? I don't know if it was it... a bowling club. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. If it, Or if it was like... You know how, like, they'll have, like, water aerobics class and they'll have, like, our yoga class. I don't know why I chose fucking water aerobics first, but I guess that's... Seems to ring some special bell for you. (laughs) That's that's a small look into the old lady mindset that I have. Um, But, yeah, I wonder if it's that. I wonder if it's not school-related. Yeah, I couldn't find too much information on it. But, there were um, other things. Yeah, there's to a focus lot of on. other shit to get yeah. to. So, um, instead of going to that class, the boys arrived separately at Columbine High School around 11:10 a.m. Harris parked in the junior student parking lot, and Klebold in the adjoining senior lot. And uh, these two parking positions flanked the entrances and exits to their primary target, which was the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. Um, you've probably seen pictures, but if anybody hasn't. And also, if anyone doesn't know about this case, I'm extremely sorry. This is <laughs> this is going to be a lot. Yep. Um, so if anyone hasn't seen pictures, the the side of Columbine High School that they were on, it was a long outside window wall, like floor to roof windows. Um, and it was just north of the senior parking lot. The library was located above the cafeteria in the second story of the window wall. And we're going to get to the library in a bit. 
Um, okay. Each of the boys' cars contained pipe bombs that were, uh, not pipe bombs, um, propane bombs that were supposed to detonate at 12 p.m. Um, okay. This was not going to be the main event. Two 20-pound propane bombs concealed in duffel bags had been placed in the cafeteria, set to go off at 11.17 a.m. during the height of the A lunch shift, when over 480 students would have been eating lunch. Um, in the days and weeks preceding these events, Eric had been keeping notes of when the optimal time for the bombs to go off would be. Like, he That's was so basically counting heads to see how when is the most people in this room. Yeah. Um, exactly when these duffel bags were placed is still kind of unknown. No witness recalled seeing them being added to the hundreds of backpacks that were already in the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that a custodian was replacing the school's security videotape at 11.14 a.m., which might have been the time that the duffel bags were dropped off. Um, shortly after the massacre, police also investigated whether the bombs were placed during an after-prom party that was held the weekend prior. Okay. Some people will say online that uh, you can see the bags in the security footage time stamped at 11.58 a.m. I didn't go that deeply into it. Doesn't matter when they got right. there, they were there. Right. Um, in addition to the bombs placed around the school, two backpacks filled with pipe bombs and aerosol canisters and some small propane bombs were also placed in a field about three miles south of CHS and two miles south of the fire station. They were set to detonate at 11.14 a.m., and were intended as a diversion to draw firefighters and emergency personnel away from the school. Now, when I first, uh, like, I knew basic information about Columbine before doing all this research. I was not aware mm -hmm. of this plan. Right. Which is, I think, chillingly devious. Yeah, I was, and it, not just that, I'm sitting here and I'm hearing this also, well, not for the first time for you, but for me at least. And... How do their parents not watch them? We're gonna like, do they not notice that they're we're, in we're their room to, a lot? Or, we're gonna get to it because again, like, I would not, I would not immediately go ahead and say it's a hundred percent the parents' fault. I'm not saying it is, but also it's just it's another example of slipping through the cracks. Like, how do you yep. not notice that your child is working on, but your children and their friends are working on propane bombs. There's going like, to be a lot of information specifically on Dylan Klebold because his mother, Sue Klebold, um, eventually became an advocate for mental health and uh, oh. gun safety. She wrote a book. She has a TED That's Talk. We're going to get to it in part three. Um, but yeah, they, they place these other bombs um, to draw <laughs> to draw emergency personnel away from the school. It's so chilling. Like... Um, yeah but thankfully we're gonna there's gonna be a lot of talk about this these guys were shit at making bombs like well, really I mean, and thank thank god they were shit at making bombs right. um so in these in these two other caches of bombs um the only ones that went off were um one aerosol can, uh, canister and it detonated causing a small fire and it was quickly extinguished by the fire department okay. um so just as a sidebar, it went off when it was moved and bomb technicians immediately examined the bombs. And when things started going downhill at the school, they relayed to the police at the school that there was a possibility of devices with motion activators. I don't know if okay. they specifically had motion activators or they were just so shit and like the wiring right. was so spotty that they it accidentally went off. <clears throat> right. Though it would in the sense it, it 
in a sense, it would, it, that would, I, I can understand how they would make it motion activated because presumably kids are going to be running through the parking lot away from what's going on inside no, to these, their cars these were, to get these away. These were set off to go. These were in a field miles away and they oh. were set off. They were very interested I in I thought time. they were in the parking lot. I misunderstood. Sorry. No, they, they were in parking lots um, like three miles away to make sure uh, that okay. police were and firefighters were going away from the school. Um, and they were very specific in making like timed bombs. They wanted, they timed this all out specifically. Yeah. This is, no. Yeah. No. So, Meanwhile, after the bombs are placed, everything, um, Jefferson County Sheriff's Deputy Neil Gardner was assigned to the high school as a full-time school resource officer. He usually ate lunch in the cafeteria with the students, Mm -hmm. but on April 20th, he was eating lunch in his patrol car at the northwest corner of the campus, watching students in the Smoker's Pit in Clement Park, which is a meadow adjacent to the school. And I'm guessing Smoker's Pit, it's probably the designated area for students to go smoke. Right. In my school, you weren't allowed to smoke on school grounds there was like a disused railway like next to the school so like people would go on the tracks to smoke so like this is like their their designated area to go so he's keeping an eye on the school he's keeping an eye on the smoker's pit he's right in the middle right um as harris pulled up to the school parking lot he immediately saw brooks brown he was going out for his smoking break Harris had missed a big philosophy test in third period and also skipped fourth period, which made Brooks uh, take notice. He said Mm -hmm. in in an interview, quote, Eric was always type A about his grades. He wouldn't ditch class if there was a big test or assignment due. It really struck me that Eric wouldn't show up that day. When we got to fourth hour, he still wasn't in class. And I even, um, and even I only ditched one class in a row usually. And Dylan wasn't there either, end quote. So... When he saw Harris pull up to the school late, Brown went over to confront him. According to Brown, Harris seemed unconcerned, uh, commenting, quote, it doesn't matter anymore, end quote. Oh, God. When Brown asked what he was talking about, Harris went on, quote, Brooks, I like you now. Get out of here. Go home, end quote. Brown felt uneasy, but he was already prepared to skip his next class, so he walked down South Pierce Street away from the school. Wow. It was the last interaction uh, that Harris had before the events happened. Wow, um, but like, just can you imagine? Yeah, it, this is your friend. Yeah, they've had problems in the past. There was the whole thing with he said he wanted to kill Brooks Brown. They had they yeah. had a weird relationship for a couple of years there, but at this point they were on good terms with each other. Right. I like you now. I yeah. I like you now. Go home. So he was. He's basically warning him like. Right. Shit's going down. Get out of here. But you he don't want to be mixed he up with it. Think to Brooks doesn't think to be like, oh well, that's a that's a no, suspicious sa- thing to say. He just he go, said okay, he felt bye. he said he felt weird about it, but he was already headed out of the school. So like he's like, fuck you. It's not my problem now. Yeah, and he's not gonna immediately jump to oh he's gonna commit some violent act. It didn't school. raise any yeah. flags for him. Yeah. Um, but once Harris and Klebold got together, they began arming themselves using straps and webbing to conceal weapons beneath their black dusters, like I said, often referred to as the trench coats. Right. Um, they each had backpacks and duffel bags filled with nearly 100 homemade pipe bombs and various other ammunition. Beneath their coats, Harris wore a white T-shirt with black letters that read Natural Selection, and Klebold oh wore a black T-shirt with red letters that said Wrath. Um, in one of the basement tapes... Um, Klebold theorized how this moment would feel. 
uh, saying, quote, it will be the most nerve-wracking 15 minutes of my life. After the bombs are set and we're waiting to charge through the school, seconds will be like hours. I can't wait. I'm shaking like a leaf. Unquote. Oh, my God. Yeah. At 11.17 a.m., the cafeteria bombs failed to detonate. Had these bombs exploded with full power, they could have easily killed or severely wounded all of the 488 students in the cafeteria and possibly mm. made the ceiling collapse by destroying the pillars holding it up, dropping oh, wow. the library into the cafeteria. Holy shit. The loss of life had these bombs gone off would have been catastrophic. Right. And this was already shaping up to be just a highly violent, just high death toll yes. event. Yes. They, Without that. They had said just, in multiple oh journals and in different, um, in different basement tapes that they wanted this to be the largest like mass event uh, yeah. on record like we had talked about the oklahoma city bombing this was kind of yes. on the anniversary of the oklahoma city bombing that happened um in 1995 and they were like they were like fuck that guy we're gonna do better pretty much yeah which like get help. crazy yeah so, based on Harrison Klebold's tapes and journals, the plan was to blow up the school and shoot the people who were running out. When the bombs failed, it was on to plan B. Harrison Klebold approached the west entrance of the school, where some kids were hanging out and eating lunch on the lawn. Klebold threw one of the pipe bombs towards the parking lot, and it failed to fully detonate again. Uh, it did let off a lot of smoke, and some students believed that this was part of some senior prank. The, the school year was going to be over in a couple of weeks. Right, right. Um, a witness reported hearing go, go before Klebold and Harris pulled their guns from beneath their coats and began shooting 17 year olds, Rachel Scott and Richard Castaldo were eating lunch on the grass. When the shooting began, Scott was hit first with four rounds from Harris's carbine. Castaldo was shot eight times in the chest, arm and abdomen. He fell to the ground unconscious, but alive and was left paralyzed below the chest. Oh my God. After removing his coat and reloading his weapon, Harris then took aim at the west staircase where Daniel Rarborough, age 15, um, Sean Graves, age 15, and Lance Kirkland, age 16, were all walking out. The three boys were on their way to the smoker's pit and thought that Klebold and Harris were handling paintball guns. Oh, my God. Harris opened fire, killing Rarborough. Kirkland said later that he didn't remember hearing gunshots, but he was hit in the leg and chest. Graves ran past, taking several shots to the back and abdomen before a gunshot wound to the leg downed him just outside the door to the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. It's at this point where teacher and coach Dave Sanders heard the gunfire and started to warn students in the cafeteria to get under the tables and not to go out to the parking lot. He and two custodians, John Curtis and Jay Gallantine, began getting students out of the cafeteria through the east exits opposite the gunfire. Sanders then tried to secure as much of the school as possible, running through the halls and alerting students in the classrooms. This guy's a hero. Yeah, we'll, I was going to we'll, say what a we'll hero. We'll get to Dave Sanders in a bit. Um, as students began realizing the situation was a lot more serious than they initially thought, many panicked and ran, leaving all of their belongings in the cafeteria behind. Yeah. Aaron Brown, the younger brother of Brooks, um, was among these students running from the cafeteria. He made it out of the school safely and didn't stop running until he made it to his house. He just... Him. He just heard it and just fucking booked it. I don't blame him. I don't blame I him. I would have done the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Klebold and Harris began shooting in the direction of five students sitting on the grassy hill west of the stairs. 
15-year-old Michael Johnson was hit in the face, leg, and arm, but he ran and hid by an outdoor athletic shed, um, while 16-year-old Mark Taylor was shot in the chest, arms, and leg, fell to the ground where he had to fake his death. Um, The three other students escaped uninjured. There's going to be a lot of, like, the kids that are injured in these situations, something in them just immediately was, like, I have to get out of this situation. I have to pretend I'm dead. I have to, mm-hmm. I like, their survival instinct. Yeah. Like, immediately. Like, I, that wouldn't have been my first reaction. If I'm hit, I'm freaking out. But he was like, immediately, no, I need to pretend I'm dead. They're not going to shoot at me again. Um, Klebold walked down the steps towards the cafeteria, and he came up to Lance Kirkland, who was already wounded and lying on the ground, weakly calling for help. Klebold said, quote, sure, I'll help you, end quote. And then he shot Kirkland in the face with a shotgun. Oh, my God. Although gravely injured, his jaw would later be mangled. He would need many surgeries to fix it. He would survive. Good for him. Yeah. Uh, We'll definitely talk about him when I talk about survivors in the next episode. He is, his story is incredible. Um, The other boys, Graves, um, he was paralyzed beneath the waist, had crawled into the doorway of the cafeteria's west entrance and collapsed. He rubbed blood on his face and played dead. Mm-hmm. After shooting Kirkland, Klebold walked toward the cafeteria door, stepping over the injured Graves to enter the cafeteria. Graves remembered Klebold saying, quote, sorry, dude, end quote. What the fuck? Yeah. And um, that's another, it's like you j- just bumped into somebody in the grocery store. Yeah. Like the, the lack of well, sincerity. I don't know. I don't know if Klebold said that because he knew that Graves was faking Oh no, I think he I don't think he I think he thought he was dead. Yeah. But just and was just saying like he was sorry about it. Yeah, but like I don't think he was sorry. I think it was just like, oh sorry, dude. I will never understand their mental states going through this. No. And I don't want to. No, no, no. No. Absolutely. I don't want to get to that point. Um Cleveland only briefly entered the cafeteria and did not shoot at the several people who were still inside. He was most likely going to check on the failed propane bombs, why they Mm -hmm. hadn't gone off. Um, Harris was still at the top of the stairs shooting and severely wounded, partially paralyzed 17-year-old Anne-Marie Hodgehalter, uh, as she tried to run away. Klebold came out of the cafeteria, went back up the stairs to join Harris. They shot at students standing close to the soccer field, but didn't hit anyone. They walked toward the west entrance, throwing pipe bombs in several directions, including onto the roof. Only a few of these bombs actually detonated. Witnesses heard one of them say, quote, this is what we always wanted to do. This is awesome. Oh, my God. Yeah. I will say one, if you could call it funny, on the roof that day was a maintenance worker uh, fixing an HVAC system. Mm -hmm. HVAC. And yeah, HVAC. He (laughs) obviously didn't know what the hell was going on no he he ended up barring himself on the roof like he he barred the door to the roof so nobody else could get up there but smart as like reports started coming out they were like there's a there's a sniper on the roof there's a sniper on the roof and he's like he's cowering on the roof like i don't know what the fuck is going on what do you mean there's a sniper on the roof i'm on the roof yeah Yeah, oh my god so um that would be me i think he was rescued like three hours after like oh the God. events happened yeah the poor guy was like stuck on yeah. the roof forever well because they're so busy doing damage control well we're gonna like, talk about how fucking and, busy they were well yeah i, I i'm sure we will <laughs> yeah um I, <sighs> but anyway so while all of this commotion was going on Yay. art student patty nielsen was monitoring the halls 
she and a student named Brian Anderson uh, were going towards the west entrance to see what was happening. Anderson had actually been told by another teacher to get out of the school. And because he didn't know where the danger was, he just went to the closest exit, which happened to be no. the entrance where they were. No. Oh, God. So Nielsen, uh, thinking that the sound was a senior prank or maybe someone filming something, was going to tell whoever it was to knock it off. But as Anderson opened the first set of double doors, the windows were shot out and um, he was hit in the chest with flying glass and fragments. Mm-hmm. Nielsen was also hit in the shoulder, forearm, and knee by glass. She and Anderson ran back towards the library where they warned uh, students to get under the desks and to stay quiet. Anderson fell to the floor, bleeding from his injuries, and hid inside the magazine room that was adjacent to the library. While Nielsen famously called 911, her 911 call is one of the ones you could hear pretty much anywhere online. There's going to be a large chunk of that that is removed, and that is at the time where uh, Harrison Klebold are in the library, and it's very upsetting. That's Mm -hmm. where a lot of this uh, happened. Um, But yeah, her her 911 call is chilling um in part of it she says quote kids are screaming and teachers are trying to get control of thing uh, control of things we need police here now end quote so at nine uh, sorry eleven twenty two a.m deputy gardner received a call on the school radio requesting assi- assistance in the senior parking lot just for context the first shots went out at eleven nineteen a.m so this is eleven twenty two. i have to kind of double okay. back a little okay. bit okay yeah oh um, my god only in Three minutes. This whole thing only lasted like 45 minutes. Oh, my God. Yeah. So when Deputy Gardner pulled up to the school a minute later, he heard on his police radio that a female was down, and he assumed that she had been hit by a car. While exiting his patrol car in the senior lot, he heard another call on his school radio, quote, Neil, there's a shooter in the school, end quote. Oh, my God. Yeah, being the one officer on scene at that point. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um. Harris, having just shot out the doors of the west entrance that injured Anderson and Nielsen, uh, immediately turned and fired 10 shots from his carbine at Deputy Gardner, who was 60 yards away. His weapon jammed, and when he went to go clear it, Deputy Gardner leaned over the top of his car and fired four rounds at Harris from his service pistol. Mm -hmm. Harris ducked behind the building, and Deputy Gardner thought for a minute that he had hit him. Uh, When Harris reemerged and fired at least four more rounds at Deputy Gardner, which missed and struck two parked cars. Um, He then retreated into the building. No one was hit during this exchange of gunfire. Deputy Gardner reported on his police radio, quote, shots in the building. I need someone in the South lot with me, end quote. Six other deputies that had heard the first call of a female down had arrived at the school and were helping students evacuate the area. Harris has another brief shootout with um, an officer smoker. It was said in one of the timelines that I had seen that at this point, Harris had fired his weapon 47 times and Klebold just five. I don't know if that's 100% correct, Mm -hmm. but I think it's the accepted story that Harris shot a lot more than Klebold did. Okay. Okay. Again, I don't don't want to know these numbers. Yeah, no. That was just in my research. So the shooters entered the school through the west entrance, moving along the the main North hallway, throwing pipe bombs and shooting at anyone they encountered all while laughing. All of the survivors say, Oh my God. Um, Klebold shot Stephanie Munson, age 17 in the ankle. Um, but she was able to get out of the school. 
one student who was on one of the phones inside the lobby looked up at the time to see the shooters approaching. She had been talking to her mother, but when the gunman uh, came around the corner, she dropped the phone and hid in a nearby restroom. Klebold stopped near the phones, then ran back the way he had came towards the library. The girl crept out of the restroom, back to the phone, where she whispered to her mother to come pick her up, and she was able to escape through the east exit of the school. I never found out the name of this girl, but that is such a chilling moment that she just dropped the phone. Her mother's still on the line. Right. And she just knew she needed to get away. Right. Um, And for the mother, too. Oh, God. Oh, my mother would have died of a heart attack. Honestly. um, I'm not trying at all to make this about me, but when that gunman was on unh's campus well we were we're gonna have to talk about that because you were on a school where there was an active yeah yeah there was a shooter um but i called my mother very quickly and was basically in retrospect if you're ever in this situation i know you're not thinking but maybe don't do what i did (laughs) Um, I'm laughing because it's like so fucked up that I even have to say this, but, um, and I, I, w- I want to say that your situation, if anyone's worried, your situation was over pretty quickly. Four hours. You were stuck in the room for four hours. Oh but I no, I was stuck him. in the room for longer. It took four hours for them to get him. Oh really? Yes. I thought they had gotten him pretty quickly. He, he, he alluded to the fact not again, not to make this about me and we will talk about it another time, but he alluded to the fact that there was a second gunman, which there was not, but it was to throw them off the trail. Got it. Got and, it got it. Well, that's another thing I'm going to get to with this, where um, at one point I, I specifically mentioned Harris removed his coat. Yeah. Well, at one point, Klebold also removes his coat and then yeah. he turns his hat backwards. And yeah. now what you have is four shooters. Yeah. Because one kid two is are wearing coats. It, yeah. And they're going to say two hat. are wearing coats. One has, hat, has his hat on frontwards. One has his hat on backwards. Yeah. He takes his hat off. Like, and they weren't like so super many... popular kids, so they weren't well known. So it wasn't some like kids, they recognized them going, yeah, oh, some these kids, two kids. Some kids recognize them, but not everybody. Yeah. And they were like, well, they were wearing coats. Well, they were they were doing this. They were doing that. Like, yeah. If you're in that type of situation, like, you don't know. You You don't know know. all these facts. You don't. And also, if you're in that type of situation, don't call your mother while she's Christmas present shopping in Macy's and go, hey, there's a shooter on my campus. I love you. I got to go by. And then hang up the phone. Maybe don't do that because your mother will then collapse in front of the coach bag counter and the poor girl will think that she's having a heart attack. True story. And call her manager thinking that she's losing it. As she's saying, there is, I've got to go. There is a school shooter at my daughter's school and I've got to go. Yeah. Maybe it's don't terrifying. do that. Yeah. Yeah. Terrifying. Um, but luckily this girl got out. Um, True. So Sanders, uh, the teacher, Mr. Sanders, and another student, Greg Barnes, were walking down the end of the hallway um, where Sanders had gestured for students in the library to stay Uh, Like I said, after he evacuated the cafeteria, he was just going around the school making sure other people were, like, locked down. Mm -hmm. Um, They encountered Harrison Klebold, who were approaching from the corner of the north hallway. Sanders and Barnes turned and ran in opposite directions. Harrison Klebold shot at them both, with Harris hitting Sanders twice in the back and the neck, hitting his teeth on exit. Oh, my Um, God. Yeah, but he missed Greg Barnes. Mm -hmm. Um. When he was able, um, Sanders was able to run into a science classroom and warn everyone to hide. Um, uh, sorry, Barnes, Barnes told yeah. everyone to hide. Yeah. Um, 
He later told reporters, quote, I saw Coach Sanders turn around, take two shots right in front of me. Blood went flying off him, and he fell, end quote. This poor kid. Um, yeah. Klebold walked over to Sanders, who had collapsed and tossed a pipe bomb, and then returned to Harris. After the shooters left, Sanders struggled toward a science area, and a teacher, uh, Richard Long, took him into a classroom. Uh, one student who was hiding was an Eagle Scout and had good knowledge of first aid. His name was Aaron ha- uh, Hansey. Mm-hmm. He was brought to the classroom from another by teachers despite the danger um, with the assistance of a fellow student named Kevin Starkey and a teacher, Teresa Miller. Hansi administered first aid to Sanders for three hours, attempting oh, to stem wow. the blood loss using, uh, sorry, You're okay. using You're shirts okay. from other students in the room and showing him pictures from his wallet to keep him talking. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh so they they did a reenactment of this in um, one of the documentaries. That's kind oh, of at the fuck point where no. I had to, yeah, it's kind yeah, of at no. the point where I had to stop because like he's a kid. Yeah, he's a kid with like Eagle Scout knowledge of first aid. Right, and he has to like keep his teacher alive. Right, it's rough. Um, so using a phone in the room, Miller and several students maintained contact with emergency dispatch who assured them that help was on the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so help wasn't going to be on the way for a while. Um, meanwhile, Harrison Klebold shot out the windows to the east entrance of the school. After proceeding through the hall several times and shooting towards and missing any students that they saw, uh, they went towards the west entrance and turned into the library hallway. Mm-hmm. This is going to be the worst of it. Um, there was the most loss of life in the library. Um, at 11.29 a.m., Harrison Klebold entered the library where 52 students, two teachers, and two librarians were hiding. Harris fired his shotgun twice at a desk. Student Evan Todd, age 15, had been standing near the pillar where the shooters entered the library and had just taken cover behind a copier. Todd was hit by wood splinters in the eye and lower back, but was not seriously injured. He then hid behind the administrative counter. Throughout the massacre in the library, they ordered everybody to get up, saying that the library was going to explode. They had never put any bombs in the library. Mm -hmm. Um, They stated how long they had been waiting for this and seemed to be enjoying themselves, shouting things like, Yahoo, after shooting. Mm -hmm. They started yelling for everyone in the room to get up, loud enough that it could be heard over the phone Nielsen was holding, still on with 911. Again, this is going to be cut from... Uh, the actual 911 call that you can find online. Right. Um, witnesses hiding in the library's subrooms said that they heard the gunmen say things such as, quote, everybody with a white cap or baseball cap, stand up. All jocks stand up. We'll get you guys in the white hats, end oh quote. Oh, my God. So wearing a white cap at Columbine was a tradition among the sports team members. So this mm-hmm. is where the rumor of they were after the jocks comes in. Right. Um, I would say when you go through the list of people that were killed um, at Columbine, besides the teacher being a coach, um, I didn't specifically find that any of the students, like a mass majority of the students were um, were jocks. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll get into why I think um, they the the targeting jocks thing was um a rumor in a little bit but Mm -hmm. of course nobody stood up and several students actually tried to hide their white hats i mean Um, can you blame them 
Yeah, right? Uh, the gunman walked further into the library towards two rows of computers. Sitting at the north row was 16-year-old disabled student Kyle Velasquez. Klebold fired his shotgun, fatally hitting him in the back and the head. They put down their ammunition-filled duffel bags at the south or lower row of computers and reloaded their weapons. They then walked between the computer rows towards the windows facing the outside staircase. Mm-hmm. The windows were shot out in the direction of the recently arrived police. Officers returned fire and the gunmen retreated from the windows and no one was injured in this exchange of gunfire. Klebold okay. then removed his coat. Again, now we have more shooters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he then fired his shotgun at a nearby table, injuring three students, 17-year-old Patrick Ireland, 17-year-old Daniel Steepleton, and 19-year-old Mackay Hall. And it's worth noting at this point that there were six police units outside the school helping people flee and setting up a perimeter, but no officer tried to enter the school and confront the killers. Police procedure at the time was emphasized on containment. Um, We'll get to a pretty chilling quote from Brooks Brown's father about this, um, this practice in a bit. But... Harris walked toward the lower row of computers with his shotgun and fired a single shot under the first desk while down on one knee, killing 14-year-old Stephen Chernow with a shot to the neck. Mm-hmm. Moving to the adjacent computer desk, he injured 17-year-old Casey Russiger with a shot which passed completely through her right shoulder, also grazing her neck and sev- severing a major artery. Uh, when she started gasping in pain, Harris said, quote, quit your bitching. Oh, my God. Yeah. Harris then walked over to a table with two students underneath, 17-year-old Cassie Bernal, and I didn't write down her age, but I think she was also 17, Emily Wyant. Mm -hmm. Harris slapped the surface of the table twice as he knelt down and said peekaboo before shooting Bernal (sighs) once in the head with a shotgun, killing her. Harris had held the gun with one hand at this point, and the weapon had hit his face in recoiling and injured his nose. He told Klebold, who angrily responded, quote, why'd you do that? Mm-hmm. Great. Um, after fatally shooting Bernal, Harris turned toward the next table where Brie Pasquale sat next to the table rather than under it. There wasn't enough room. Mm-hmm. Um, Harris's nose was bleeding. Witnesses later report that he had blood around his mouth, which must have made him look fucking terrifying. Yeah. Harris asked Pasquale if she wanted to die, and she responded with a plea for her life. Harris laughed and responded, quote, everyone's going to die, end quote. When Klebold said to shoot her, Harris responded, quote, no, we're going to blow up the school anyway, end quote. Which, imagine being her and hearing that. Exactly. (sighs) People noticed um, Patrick Ireland trying to provide um, aid to Mackay Hall, who had suffered a wound to his knee. As Ireland tried to help Hall, his head rose above the table. Klebold shot him a second time, hitting him twice in the head and once in the foot. Ireland was knocked unconscious, but survived. Klebold then walked toward another table where he discovered 18-year-old Isaiah Scholes, 16-year-old Matthew Ketcher, and 16-year-old Craig Scott, Rachel Scott's younger brother. Uh, they were hiding underneath a table together. Klebold called out to Harris that he had found an N-word and oh tried God. to pull Scholes out from under the table. Harris left Pasquale to join him. According to witnesses, they taunted Scholes for a few seconds, making derogatory racial comments before firing under the table. Harris shot Scholes once in the chest, killing him, and Klebold shot and killed Ketcher. Though Scholes was not shot in the head, 
Klebold said, quote, I didn't know black brains could fly that far. What the fuck? Yeah. Meanwhile, Scott was uninjured, lying in the pool of blood of his friends, playing dead. Harris then yelled, quote, who's ready to die next? End quote. Oh, my God. He turned and threw a cricket, which is like a small little bomb, at a table where Hall, Steepleton, and Ireland were located. It landed on Steepleton's thigh, and Hall quickly mm. noticed it and tossed it behind them, and it exploded midair. Oh my Harris God. walked towards the bookcases between the west and center sections of the tables in the library. He jumped on one, shook it, and apparently attempted to topple it, and then shot at books that had fallen. Okay. Klebold um, walked toward the east area of the library. Harris walked from the bookcase past the central area to meet Klebold, who shot out a display case near the door and then turned and shot toward the closest table, injuring 17-year-old Mark Kitkin uh, in the head and shoulder. He then turned towards the table to his left, firing uh, and injured 18-year-old Lisa Krutz, um, 18-year-old Lauren Townsend, and 18-year-old Valine Schnur uh, with the same shotgun blast. Klebold then moved towards the same table and fired several shots with his Tech-9, killing Townsend. Um, now, here's where I, ha- I kind of have to double back real quick to talk okay. about the famous Cassie Bernal martyr story. Mm-hmm. So, Craig Scott told investigators that he had heard one of the shooters ask a victim whether or not they believed in God during the shooting, and a female victim answered yes. Like, if you've heard about Columbine, you've probably heard about this story. Yes. The girl who said yes. Um... Scott, who was hiding under a table at the time, didn't see the exchange, but told investigators the voice was Bernal's. However, months later, when Scott visited the library with investigators, he identified the wrong location for Bernal, pointing instead to where Valine Schur had been hiding. Another survivor, Joshua Lapp, said the exact same thing. Um, after killing Townsend, Schnur lie on the floor injured. When Klebold approached her, she said, quote, oh my God, oh my God, don't let me die, end quote. Klebold asked her if she believed in God. She said she did, and when he asked why, she responded, quote, because I believe and my parents brought me up that way, end quote. Klebold said, quote, God is gay, end quote, uh, but did not shoot her again. In addition, Emily Wyant, who was hiding under the table next to Bernal, told investigators that Harris had shot her without asking any questions at all. Another student hiding in the same location confirmed Wyant's account. Wyant told Bernal's parents that their daughter had not spoken to either killer before the publication of the book, which I'll talk about in the third part. She said yes, which is written by Misty Bernal, Cassie Bernal's mom. Mm-hmm. This whole martyr thing gets really, really messy once we get into it. Um, but Harris approached another table where two girls were hiding. He bent down and looked at them and dismissed them as pathetic and then moved on to another table where he fired twice, injuring 16-year-olds Nicole Nolan and John Tomlin. Tomlin moved from under the table and Klebold shot him repeatedly, killing him. Oh, my God. Harris then walked over to the other side of the table where Townsend lay dead. Behind the table, a 16-year-old girl named Kelly Fleming had, like Brie Pasquale, uh, sat next to the table rather than beneath it due to lack of space. Harris shot Fleming with a shotgun, hitting her in the back and killing her. He shot at the table um, behind Fleming, hitting Townsend's body, Kreutz again, and wounding 18-year-old Jenna Park. Or Gina Park? Um, Both shooters moved to the center of the library where they reloaded their weapons at a table. Harris then pointed his carbine under a table, but the student he was aiming at moved just out of the way. 
Damn. Harris, yeah. Harris turned his gun back on the student and told him to identify himself. It was John Savage, who was an acquaintance of Klebold's. He asked Klebold what they were doing, um, to which he shrugged and said, quote, killing people, end quote. What the fuck? Yeah. Savage asked if they were going to kill him. Possibly because of a fire alarm, Klebold didn't hear him and said, what? Savage asked again, and Klebold said no and told him to run. Savage fled, escaping through the library's main entrance. Oh, my God. After Savage left, Harris turned and fired his carbine at the table directly north of where he had been, hitting the ear and hand of 15-year-old Daniel Mauser. Mauser reacted by either shoving a chair or uh, grabbing Harris's leg, something. And Harris fired again, hitting Mauser in the center of the face at close range, killing him. Oh, my God. Both shooters moved south and fired randomly under another table, critically injuring 17-year-olds Jennifer Doyle and Austin Eubanks, and killing 17-year-old Corey DePooter. After that, it was 11.35 a.m. There were no f- further victims. It had been seven and a half minutes, and they had killed 10 people in the library and wounded 12. At this point, Klebold was quoted as saying that he might start knifing people, though he never did. They had knives on them. They actually never touched them throughout the entire massacre. They headed towards the library's main counter, and Harris threw a Molotov cocktail toward the southwestern end of the library, but it failed to explode. They converged close to where Todd had moved after um, he was wounded. Klebold pulled a chair out from a desk, then pointed his tech nine at Todd, who was wearing a white hat. Mm-hmm. Klebold asked if he was a jock, and then Todd said no. Klebold responded, quote, well, that's good. We don't like jocks, end quote. Okay. Klebold then demanded to see his face. Todd partially lifted his hat so that his face would remain obscured. When Klebold asked Todd to give him one reason he shouldn't kill him, Todd said, quote, I don't want trouble, end quote. Klebold responded back angrily, quote, trouble? You don't even know what, what trouble is, end quote. Todd corrected himself, saying, quote, that's not what I meant. I mean, I don't have a problem with you guys. I never will, and I never did, end quote. Klebold then told Harris um, that he was going to let Todd live, but that Harris could kill him if he wanted. My God. Yeah. Uh, Harris seemed to pay little attention and said, quote, let's go to the commons, end quote. That's the cafeteria. Mm Mm-hmm. Klebold fired a single shot into an open library staff break room, hitting a small television. While Harris was walking away, Klebold said, quote, one more thing. And he picked up a chair beside the library counter under which Patty Nielsen was hiding and slammed the chair down on uh, the computer terminal and the library counter. So, like, dumb shit. Yeah, like, just... Um, Klebold joined Harris at the library entrance, and the two walked out of the library at 1136. Um, cautiously fearing the shooter's return, 10 injured and 29 uninjured survivors began to evacuate the library through the north emergency exit door, which led to the sidewalk adjacent to the west entrance. In an interview, uh, Brooks Brown's parents said, quote, one of the things police don't want you to know about that day on April 20th, while the executions are taking place, while these innocent children are being murdered in the library, the outside library door is propped open. And the policemen are standing by their cars on the lawn outside and are listening to these children being murdered. And they listen and they listen and they let them be murdered. And they walk about uh, and they talk about how they saved many kids that day. But that's not true. Those kids saved themselves. They came out of the school. They saved themselves. End quote. 
uh yeah no police tried to enter the library those kids got out themselves i don't disagree yeah which like you can secure a perimeter all you want yeah you can secure a perimeter all you want the kids are in the school and also i was gonna say secure a perimeter from who you're yeah you're, you're basically keeping the kids in I mean, obviously, we don't know, like, no one knew what the heck was going on. There could have been uh, other people on the way. There could have been tons more shooters, but that's not an excuse not to help the kids that are in there. And did every single officer need to be there to secure the perimeter? I don't know. Couldn't they have given, like, some, the assignment of, hey, go inside and fucking protect and serve? Yeah, right. Um so after not. leaving the library, Harrison Klebold entered the science area where they caused a fire in an empty storage closet. It was extinguished by a teacher who had hidden in the adjacent room. The gunman then proceeded towards the south hallway where they shot into an empty science room. At 11.44 a.m., they were captured on the school security cameras as they re-entered the cafeteria. The recording shows Harris kneeling on the landing and firing a single shot towards one of the propane bombs left in the cafeteria um, in an unsuccessful attempt to detonate it. As Klebold approached the propane bomb and examined it, Harris took a drink from one of the cups that was left behind. Klebold lit a Molotov cocktail and threw it at the propane bomb. About a minute later, uh, the gallon of fuel attached to the bomb ignited, causing a fire that was extinguished by the fire sprinklers a, a few minutes later. Mm. And then they left the cafeteria at 11.46. After leaving the cafeteria, they returned to the main north and south hallways of the school and fired several shots into the walls and ceilings as students and teachers hid in rooms. Witnesses described the two as looking through the windows of some of the classrooms, locked doors, and making eye contact with some of the students, yet not attempting to break into the rooms or harm any more students. The witnesses said the gunman didn't appear to be overly intent on gaining access to any of the rooms. They easily could have shot out the locks on the doors or through the windows of the classroom, but they didn't. Their behavior now seemed directionless. They walked through the south hallway uh, into the main office before returning to the north hallway. At 11.56, they returned to the cafeteria and briefly entered the school kitchen. They returned to the the staircase and into the south hallway at 12 p.m. They re-entered the library, which was empty except... um, It was empty of survivors except for the unconscious Patrick Ireland and injured Lisa Kreutz. Once inside at 11, uh, sorry, at 12.02, police uh, were shot at again through the library windows and they returned gunfire. Nobody was injured in the exchange. By 12.05, all gunfire from the school had ceased. By 12.08, both Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold had killed themselves. Harris sat down with his back to the bookshelf and fired his shotgun through the roof of his mouth. Klebold then went down on his knee and shot himself in the left temple with his Tech 9. An article by the Rocky Mountain News stated that Patty Nielsen overheard them shout one, two, three in unison just before a loud boom. However, Nielsen claimed that she had never spoken with either of the writers of that article. So it's unconfirmed. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, but that's going to be the end of this episode. Oh, I'm not. I'm ready for a break. The amount of bullshit we have to get to in parts two and three is a lot. Right. So... I'm going to have to end it there. Thoughts? I got nothing. Yeah. Uh, Again, this is horrible. And lots of people know it as like just the word 
Columbine, it like I'll get to it um, when we talk about everything that happens after, but it basically becomes synonymous with school shooting. Yeah. Like you hear you hear Col- Columbine's a flower. You don't know that. Yeah, no. Columbine is still a high school and it's I, not yeah. talked about. Columbine is the shooting. Which is horrible. And um yeah, what I just said was horrifically brutal and uh as you could hear, it was really hard to talk about, but yep. Um, when we start talking about sympathy, um, for Harrison Klebold, I just want to put in perspective, this is what they did. Yeah. So yes, they were failed multiple times. I do understand that. I understand that they had, um, mental health problems that kind Mm -hmm. of went unchecked. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I'll get to that Harris was on, um, like a, I don't think it was a mood state, but he was on some type of medication that didn't seem to be working. Um, but clearly, yeah. But again, you can say that it's a failing on teachers, on fellow students, on parents, on the police. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of fa- there's a lot of failings, but these kids did this. Yeah, and this is how horrific it was. So we don't need to be bolstering them up and like like calling them martyrs for the cause of the the yeah. outcast no they weren't they're horrible people that took the lives away of 13 students and a teacher and if they and, if they were martyrs for the cause for the outcasts and everything they wouldn't have been so laissez-faire about it they they killed everybody they didn't kill just the jocks or just the popular kids or just the smart kids it was they shot at whoever they, they can aim care. their gun at yeah and they thought they had killed at the time they they <clears throat> this ended they also thought that they had killed a lot more people and that they were going to kill a lot more people the only thing that you can say is at the end it seems like they didn't get as much out of it as they thought they were going to um no. like a lot of a lot of the survivors said they were kind of just walking around like kind of listless kind of just like not really into it anymore yeah and well they you played know it what? up in their heads so much probably yeah. you know what fuck you guys seriously uh, I'm, I'm sorry sorry taking 13 lives wasn't your fucking thrill for you dude um yeah so hopefully anyone that dipped out uh, will join us back next, next week, week where um, I'm going to, it's going to pick up like right at the moment where this is all over um, talking about the aftermath, talking about um, what happened in the days and weeks after some motives I'm going to get to. Um, I'm just scrolling through my notes just so I can give you kind of a brief overlook of uh, there's going to be things of like, well, what could have caused this? <clears throat> Which is fucking wild. Mm-hmm. And why did they do this? And um, and then we'll talk about pop culture stuff. Okay. So if you want to do your own research and go down your own fucking rabbit hole, good luck to you. Mm. Sorry it ended on such a bummer. <laughs> I mean, this but is a true crime podcast. So. It is a true crime podcast. I, but again, I think it's like, like the ones with kids yeah always are rough 
Always. Um, but once we start talking about survivor stories, um, it should lift you up a little bit because the, the things some of these people did after going through this event is the, the courage and the strength in these people is remarkable. I can't, I can't even, I, that's when, that's when I started really going down the rabbit hole is I was looking at all of these uh, survivor stories and I, I don't even want to spoil it because these people are incredible. Um, but yeah, you'll find us next week. Um, you can, if you want to tell us your reactions to this episode, email us crimeculturepod at gmail.com. You can go on any of our social medias, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, not LinkedIn. Um, not LinkedIn. Still not LinkedIn. Um, for the people who've been requesting this, I hope you're happy. You got what you wanted, Emma. You got, you got even more than you wanted because you're not getting one episode, you're getting three. So, right. right. You thought this was brutal. Now Get everybody else is going to be pissed and they're going to claim favoritism. Well, they got three episodes. I only well, got one. Well, I'm sorry. So we gotta I, I, figure ruined, out a way. I ruined gotta, my life for three months researching this. So. You know what? You sh- you deserve this. You deserve this for playing favorites. Yeah. Mom um, has no favorites, she says. She lies. No. Anyway. Anything this to has just gone on bring this back way up. too long. <laughs> yeah. This has gone on way too long. Um, yeah. We and there's will, still more. We will see you next Tuesday. Alrighty. I guess we will. Uh, well, probably right before we go. Um, if you feel... Um, similar to how I've described these boys feeling and you think that this is any type of solution. Uh, it's not, uh, there are so many other things that can help you. And, um, there are so many people that you can talk to that would be so adamant and excited to help you. So no one ever wants to go through this. No one's, no one wants to lose their kids. Um, no one wants to lose their family members, put a dark mark on their school. This is not the way to do it. And like I said, I'm not focusing on Harrison Klebold moving forward. It's all about the survivors and how they have built themselves up in the aftermath of this. So, Ultimately, it's not the people who perpetrate this that win. It's the people that survive this and uh, make themselves better people after it. Yeah. So. Please just, please seek help. There's a lot of resources out there. Yeah. Everything's going to work out. Yeah. In a way that doesn't hurt people. Yeah, exactly. So we will see you next Tuesday. Again. Again. <laughs> <laughs>